Hi, everyone, and welcome to Academic Dean, where we connect with passionate college leaders who share their stories and viewpoints of higher education, especially lessons learned along the way. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dave Gurchak. Hi, everyone. Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Teresa Rivenus to our show. Dr. Rivenus is the Vice President of Instruction at Tillamook Bay Community College in Tillamook, Oregon. Hi, Teresa. I'm so happy to have you on our show today. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. So can you talk a little bit about Tillamook Bay Community College and why students select your institution? Absolutely. We are a very small rural two-year community college on the Oregon coast, and we live in the most beautiful area in the world. There's nowhere else prettier. Um, And I always tell people when they think of what it's like here to think of cheese, trees, and the ocean breeze. We have all of that right here local, which is pretty great. Um, Students choose our institution. We have a really great ag tech program, all of that dairy industry right here. And we also have created some really innovative options for local students. So one example, our healthcare program is blended. It's part leadership and part clinical. It's the only one I'm aware of like that, but it works perfectly for small rural healthcare. So we have degrees and certificates that really work for our community. We have occupational skills training, which lets us train one or two people in specialty things in that work for this community. So I think that's one of the main reasons that students choose us. Um, our county is very rural. Our students are place-based. And we have a wide disparate socioeconomic status across across our county. That's one of the things that makes us so important, I think, um, for our placebound students. You know, can you go back a little bit, this leadership clinical? Can you explain that a little bit more? Because you kind of piqued my interest on when you said that. It's super interesting, right? We developed it with industry, um, and our big industry here is Adventist Health, Tillamook Adventist, and um, we asked them what they needed and what do they need in clinics, and what they said to us is, we need people who can be supervisors and leaders, but they have to have technical skills because our people are both. And so we said, okay. And so we created this AAS in healthcare administration and you have to choose a clinical path in it. So you can choose an MA path, an EMS paramedicine kind of path or a phlebotomy path, but you leave this healthcare administration with a clinical path. So you can be both in a rural clinic. That's that's very cool. I, I, I don't think I've talked to anybody that offers that right now. So I've never heard of it. And we, we did it with our industry partners here. That's what they wanted. And, and it's great. It really works for our students. So what's new at your college for 2021, 2022? Um, we do a really nice job with industry partnerships, but one area where we've really been putting some emphasis because we have not historically had a lot of transfer programs. So we're looking right now, we've added some emphasis to our Associative Arts Oregon transfer. We call it the AAOT. Um, The AAOT transfer, we have an emphasis in psych, an emphasis in foreign language, and an emphasis in fine art. All of those are new. And um, so I think that's great. It gives students different kinds of opportunities here local. So that's one thing we're proud of. I think the other thing that's new is we've become a guided pathways school. 
uh, you're probably familiar with that. Basically, we spend a lot of time helping students explore the path before they get on. Once they get on the path, we keep them on the path and then we make sure they're learning throughout. And that's something we focused on. The other exciting thing, and I wish I could show, show you instead of just describe it, but if you look out my office window, we just bought a building across the street and it used to be a mechatronics shop for a machining shop. And we just bought the business, the owners are retiring, and we are going to retrofit and work on that building to be a CTE space. And we're pretty excited about that too. Wow. So what is, I, I hate to use the word most popular, but what's some of your, what's some of the big pro you mentioned ag, what's some of the big programs there? Ag, um, MIT. So machining and industrial tech and healthcare healthcare. Mm. We've only added our healthcare in the last year and a half. And those programs are full. Holy cow. Good for you yeah. guys. Good for you. Well, let's talk a little bit about yourself. And I know people sometimes don't like to do that, but can you talk about how you became an academic leader at your institution? You bet. Um, I have an interesting history. I started in corrections, believe it or not. Um, it <laughs> <laughs> that is interesting. I did. I started in, in corrections. And from there, I worked with, um, with, I call them the littles. So I worked in child development and in social work, working with children with developmental disabilities and was a social worker for a lot of years. Um, and through that, I started adjunct teaching and really enjoyed that and got more and more active in the college culture. And I became a campus center director. Uh, and there I really developed a passion for good teaching. I used to tell people um, I had to be a good faculty member because you taught from five to 10 working adults so imagine somebody's worked all day, eight to five, and, and a lot of them are military students, so seven to six, and then they went to school from six to 10 at night, and you're teaching cognitive psych. You have no, no choice but to get interesting or fail. Um, so, so I developed a passion for and an interest in good teaching and really helping people become better teachers. And that's what got me on the path to really working in higher ed. Uh, then I was blessed to work at Great Falls College there in Montana, and the open enrollment mission of community college, that's just where it's at. I mean, that's just, we meet students where they are, and we make our institution student ready, not our students institution ready, and that, that's what gets me up in the morning. That's that's just great. And I from there, I've, I've been a dean of instruction. I currently am a vice president where I get to help set vision and build culture and build commitment to the mission and just really exciting work. But it came out of, I, I suppose my history is kind of learning through failure at everything. <laughs> no choice but to get better. Oh, I, I, I was happy to hear that. Uh... You're, you came from Montana and you worked with a dear friend of mine up in Great Falls, Susan Wolf, who's the, who's the Dean CEO for that, for that college up there. And I think uh, when we look at some of the things that you talked about, I, I like the idea of when you talked about access and excellence, the, the bottom line is for any of our community college students is that, yeah, you're, it seems like you're restructuring your institution to prepare for them instead of the students having to prepare for the institution. I really like that phrase. I just absolutely love that phrase. And, and I think it's so true. I think we talk a lot about how, um, you know, students need to work harder and students need to do, to do this. But I think as institutions, if we do that, we can make a real difference. Yeah. Well, 
Shared governance is a unique organizational structure in higher ed. I think anybody in higher ed would, would tell you if they came from the business world, it drives people crazy. Uh, can you share your view on this type of employer-employee relationship and also other unfunded mandates that sometimes kind of drive or maybe at least challenging uh, academic leaders to have sleepless nights, to say the least? <laughs> Lots of sleepless nights. I'm a huge believer in, in shared governance and um and it does when I hire people from industry or I work with people of industry and, and we talk about shared governance, it's one of those things that they're like, let me understand this and try and wrap their heads around. It is a little bit different. Um, I did my dissertation on, on unfunded mandates. So what I was specifically looking at was the Oregon Promise and Oregon Promise is free college here in Oregon. And what was interesting about that initiative is that it came with an unfunded mandate of student success. It had to have a student success initiative and that was unfunded. And so I didn't start out to study shared governance. I started out um, to see what unfunded mandates did to colleges and um, living through it, you know, I mean, that's tough. And I thought I would not see a lot of change and I thought it would be a lot of status quo um, and that an unfunded mandate couldn't make a lot of difference. Interestingly, that it's not true. Um, I found that schools that had shared governance did make culture changes even in response to an unfunded mandate, which is kind of interesting. Um, people really, it makes a difference when people have a voice in the process and they see themselves in the solution and they see themselves in the answer. Um, what I learned about shared governance through that process was really, I think, four different things. One, clear communication, can't have shared governance without it. And it's hard to have clear communication all the time. Two, that schools with shared governance approach problems as in spite of. So, which is an interesting finding, right? But in spite of this, we are gonna do better anyway. In spite of that, we're gonna do better anyway. They didn't let limits get in the way. They, they rebelled against those limits, if you will. Um, the third thing I think is a focus on student success. And then the fourth, a focus on relationships. And where you can do that, you really foster shared governance. And that's so important. And it's not easy by any stretch of the imagination. It's not easy. You can't mandate culture. It'd be so easy if we could mandate culture, but it takes time and effort. But when you can do that and get into a cycle of shared governance, what you can do different than industry is really, really engage innovation and problem solving and put all your best minds at the table working on it. And that's kind of really exciting stuff, I think. Interesting. Interesting. That was a long answer. No, I, th I, I, I was going to ask you to kind of follow up a little bit on that, but I'm going to get back to the Oregon promise in a minute, because uh, I think that's really interesting. Uh, but the other question I have for you, because of your background is from an equity perspective, how can community colleges improve rural education in their region? So I'm passionate about this. So I'm super biased. I'm just going to own that right up front um, because this really is my passion. I think community colleges are economic drivers and they're the only answer to equity in, in regions. A community college is the one thing we can do to decrease crime, the one thing we can do to increase taxpayers, the one thing we can do to give people jobs that result in a retirement. 
Um, people who spend even just one term at community college can increase wages nine to 13% across a lifetime. I mean, those are results you just don't find anywhere else. Um, so community college is the answer, I think, to inequity and to, and to poverty and to rural education and that path out. I was a community college student um, and just saw the difference that that made and the difference that made, I was the first grandchild in my family to graduate from high school even, um, but all three of my daughters have gotten college degrees and, and I don't think they would have had I not gotten a community college education. It's that generational path out, which is so important. Uh, when we look at our students today, you know, debt is becoming more and more of a concern for a lot of these potential students wanting to attend college. How do you see colleges tackle this problem while maintaining access and excellence for their students? I think that is such a hard question and debt, college debt, it's just everywhere. Um, and I think maybe this goes back to Oregon Promise. I'd love to see a pre-K through associate's degree free. I mean, just for students to be able to, for everyone to be able to access that if that's what they want to do. We're not there yet. Some states are getting there, um, and but it, it's going to be a slow process, I think. One thing we can do is really talk to students and prepare them for that path. So if a student doesn't want to, well, perfect example, my son-in-law didn't want to take on student debt. And so we talked about what would work for him. He got his um, CDL at a community college, and he did that without debt, and he's making a fantastic living wage. Um, so really educating people on the options. You don't have to do, like I did, eight, 10 years of school. Um, you can do the short-term career and living things that result in a living wage. And you can do that without debt. There's a lot of scholarships and opportunities out there. So, so my next question, I want you to spend a little bit of time on it because it has to do about the Oregon Promise. And so can you talk about the Oregon Promise Grant and what that really means for students who want to attend community colleges in Oregon? So what the Oregon Promise did is it funded the first two years, and it had to be at a community college, for recent high school graduates. Um, and it started it started, it had some GPA requirements when it first started out. Gradually, those have lessened to increase the, um, the GPA has gotten lower for people eligible to increase the opportunity for people to access it. Um, it's had mixed results, quite honestly. It was a last dollar grant. And um, so a lot of the students were eligible, who were eligible for the Oregon Promise were also eligible for Pell Grants and the Oregon Opportunity Grant. Um, so it was designed, it, it tended to address middle income students and help those students start at a community college, which again, I think everyone starting at community college is important. Um, and it's a great way for people to get started on their education. So um, I think there was a lot of good that came out of it. Uh, it had a rough start. So when you say mixed reviews, I think what I'm kind of hearing you saying is, you thought a lot of disadvantaged students would, would be able to use this, but what's happening is people who would have had other options to pay for college is also using it too. So it's not exactly. what you thought it was going to happen. Exactly. Is that what your, is that what your dissertation kind of concluded? 
or, you know, because first of all, I want to mention your dissertation because I, I really think, I know you're not going to promote it, but I am, is uh, it's called uh, The Oregon Promise, a look at institutions and decisions made as a result of the Oregon Promise policy. Because I've talked to a couple other deans throughout the country. And, and you know, when I talk about, let's talk about free community college. I, I know there's a few states doing it, but very, very few. And they're kind of struggling with, we don't know. We, you know, it, it looks like it's just, we'll just increase, we'll just increase Pell, Pell money. You know, I mean, they just, they're just kind of struggling with it. So I am interested in, in some of your research on that. It, it is really interesting. And I think um, what's interesting is it has, it's been around a little while and there's not a lot of research on it. Um, still, we're not sure. It's kind of, okay, this was, this was a great thing. Let's see how it works. There are places, um, Kalamazoo and Tennessee, where it has really increased the number of students who completed the FAFSA, which is a, an indicator of college-going culture. So if you have more high school students who are completing the FAFSA, it's more likely that more of those high school students are attending col uh, college. So, um, so in some of those places, it has been shown to increase college going behavior. What's interesting is I, the very limited research that's out there really was that Pell Grant, right? That means something to you and I. Pell Grant doesn't mean much to students. Mm -hmm but free college means something to students. And so what you what you really find when you dig into it is the same students who are applying qualified for a Pell Grant, but that didn't mean free college. And when they hear free college, that's accessible. Um, so I think that's a really interesting finding that there does seem to be some increased college going behavior as a result of the language around free college. So can you, I want to get back to your dissertation. So can you, can you give me a little five minute talk about kind of what that was and kind of what the results of that dissertation kind of proved or didn't prove? I'll try and give you 300 pages in five minutes or less. <laughs> I know, you know, I, I was, I was going, I was going to download it and I, and I uh, read the abstract and, and son of a gun, I forgot to, I, I didn't buy it, you know? And so I was trying to, it's like, gosh, darn it. And I, I could only go so many pages before in the ProQuest. So I'll like, send you a free one. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, so what my dissertation really was about was um, looking at, so the Oregon Promise put some unfunded mandates on colleges. And so they said, we're going to give students this money to go to college for free. And in response, you need to serve them better. Okay, well, you know, that, that makes sense. We want to serve them better. Um, but there wasn't money around that. So what I was really interested in, and what I expected to find was that colleges wouldn't make real change to serve students differently, that they'd bring up something they were already doing. So a lot of colleges have a student success course, um, you know, college success and survival, that kind of thing. And what I expected to see is that colleges would take that course and ramp it up, make it mandatory for everybody. And that would be the student success initiative. So, because how, how do you meet an unfunded mandate? You have to meet it with resources you currently have um, or find a way to find your own resources to make it happen. So I really was expecting to find that innovation didn't happen. And I was really expecting to find that not a lot of change happened, that the status quo happened because it was an unfunded mandate. Um, that's not actually what I found, which was kind of surprising. Uh, 
there, I looked at mid-sized community colleges, interviewed leadership um, from all four of Oregon. Oregon has four mid-sized community colleges, and I looked at all four of them. And, um, and so I really interviewed them for, was there change? Did you just step up an existing program? You know, what, what happened as a result of this? What, and what I found was with the college that had really strong shared governance, they used the Oregon Promise to change their environment and to make it more student-centered and to come up with new ideas and innovative ideas to help students feel a sense of belonging and to reach out to Oregon Promise students and, and provide them special services and things like that. Um, the schools, there were three schools that had a shared governance model and all of them had some innovation and some student service response in some way. Um, one school did not have a shared governance model and they stayed with the status quo, which was actually kind of interesting. I, I appreciated being a, a part of shared governance prior to my dissertation, but I think after my dissertation, I realized shared governance isn't something nice to be a part of. It's key to innovation and success and a student success culture. Can you give some examples of that then as far as what you talked about where the institutions were making some changes that are more student-centered? Sure. So, so one of the schools created a, um, created a club and they did activities that were really neat about belonging and, and helping students belong to that institution. Another school found ways to pull resources from other areas and to develop a student success coach that helped coach those students and, and follow up with them and, and really monitor their student success, things like that. Um, some schools took their student success course that they already had and they differentiated it. So they decided instead of just a student success course, you had a student success course for veterans and a student success course for Oregon Promise students and a student success course for just different kinds of students, um, making it more personal and innovative for students. And I assume when you talk about student success, every student coming in had to take that class? Yes. Was that, okay. Yes. So, so really interesting. I think the overall finding of my dissertation was ended up being less so about the Oregon Promise and more so about how sh shared governance creates a successful environment for students and for um, the people that work at the colleges. Switch topics a little bit. Any surprises over the past six months that actually ended up on a positive note for you? have these six last six months been hard or what? Um, <laughs> that might That's, be the understatement of the yeah. year. <laughs> these last six months, this COVID has been tough. Um, there actually have been some, I was reflecting because I think we just hit the year mark of COVID just the other day and was reflecting on what good came out of it, did good come out of it. And I think there are some, some things that have ended on a positive note. I think innovation being one of them, um, we started one of the things we did at TBCC, and this is kind of in line with the other things I've been talking about. We started a high flex teaching and high flex teaching is, is interesting. So it's a course that's offered face-to-face, -face, like a regular face-to-face -face course. 
And the same course by the same teacher at the same time is offered over Zoom. If a student wants to Zoom into the course, it's also offered asynchronous online. One course <laughs> taught these three ways. And the great thing about it is a student, I'm gonna use math for example, cause math's not my best subject. Um, a student in math can be like, oh, these first two terms are really easy. I'm gonna do those asynchronous online. And then week three, math gets hard. And so the student goes, I need to come face to face. I need extra support for this. And they come face to face. Um, likewise, a student who may start the term as a face to face student and have all the best intentions of the world and life gets chaotic in week four or five and the babysitter quits and all of a sudden you've got little ones at home and, and, and life gets in the way of community college, right? Um, so these students just seamlessly go right on into the asynchronous part and don't have to drop their classes. They just changed their college going behavior. And HyFlex is incredibly student friendly. It's about making the institution student friendly and not saying to the student, if you want to be successful, you picked face to face. You need to keep doing it this way. We have to work with students. And, and we learned that HyFlex, working on that HyFlex model throughout COVID. And I do think it's something we'll continue afterwards because it's the right thing for students. Um, I think the other thing that has been helpful here at Tillamook, for example, we, when COVID first kicked off, our K-12 partners here weren't ready for, on, I mean, how could they be ready for COVID? They're, I mean, they just couldn't have been. But we've been doing online education for a long time and doing it well. And so we went to the schools and said, here's what we want to do for you. And we made all of our college classes free to juniors and seniors for the entire year. Um, wow. And it was amazing. It saved the community, you know, something like $380,000 or something over the course of the year. But the really important thing was those kids went straight into college classes. And we said they can take them graded. We, they can take them non-graded. They can take them audit. Um, they could just sit in there. If they just want to sit in there and listen to them um, online or in Zoom, they can do that because we had a platform to continue their education. And our, it took our, our K-12 districts, it took them till fall to get that set up. Um, so I think those partnerships became really win-wins and, um, and our high school students did amazingly well. And I, I'm hopeful that they now see themselves as college going material because they've done it successfully and they did it low risk. Um, it didn't cost them anything and they could backwards take our credit and take their transcript back to the high school and got high, high school credit for it. Um, and so it just became this win-win partnership. And I really hope that's something that we can continue that K-12 partnership because it did get so strong during COVID. So I think there are good things that came out of it. Yeah. The, the dual credit's an interesting thing. I I've watched that. I, you know, in, in our, in Montana, we have, you know, we call it one, two free. In other words, you know, they can do about six credits free before it comes over. And we've watched an increase of students going in. My question though, when you talk about dual credit, are those, are the classes they're taking um, mostly um, general ed classes or are they actually taking some CTE classes that are gonna bring them into the community college? Both. Both. We had students who took gen ed, they took writing, they took math, they took speech. Um, speech was really popular, interestingly. Um, but they also did uh, did CTE in terms of they were able to do medical terminology. They were able to do business. 
Um, they were able to do accounting if they want to do accounting. So there, there was a mix in what they did. And we actually have a few uh, students who were so active over the last year that they're pretty much going to achieve their associate's degree by the time they graduate high school, which is amazing. So and cool. for free. Yeah, that's that's so cool. Um, when you look at the high flex courses, and and I, I, you know, I from from my background as a faculty member, we would have you know um, distance online, you know, and I actually brought in robots into the classroom to teach some stuff distantly. Uh, but it was either you do it that way or you have face to face. So the high flex I really like because a student can choose: do I come to class today? Do I do synchronous today? Do I do asynchronous today? It's it's really cool. Now, putting on a faculty hat, I'm going to say, do you know how much work you want me to do to make this one class that I've been doing for the last few years? Now I'm going to have to make it in three different versions. What how do you how do you help the faculty work through that first? And it sounds like shared governance helps with that. But also then also how do you how do you uh, give them the tools to better prepare them to, to do high flex classes? Oh, such a great question because it is hard. Um, there, You brought up the exact hard part about it. You want me to teach one class three different ways? You know, I've taught three classes those ways and you want me to do that at once? How, how does that work? Um, so how do we do that? A variety of different ways. First of all, our faculty are hearing from students. We love this. We love this. We love this. And that alone is so motivating for faculty. Our faculty care so much about, about how this is impactful for student success. So that's one thing. Um, but we've also brought in training. Um, and here's another kind of interesting. We paid, we're doing this in spring. We have a trainer who's doing a I think it's a two and a half week course for faculty on how to teach high flex. And we offered slots to the community colleges to the south of us. And so three of our Oregon community colleges are all joining together in their faculty. So we're going to have 41 faculty from these three schools who are learning to become experts in this and can be mentors in it. Um, I, I, I'll be honest, it takes a lot of work and time to develop these classes. It does. It's hard. And I acknowledge that every single day that, hey, you're putting this work into it and it's hard. The CRISA funds and the CARES funds, we've been able to use those to pay mm -hmm. stipends to help oh. faculty develop those. We've been able to um, use those funds to hire a support tech person who can help with the video and the video editing and do that for faculty. Um, so we try, try and be as helpful as we can by providing a supportive person to help um, and, and by paying a stipend to get it developed. And um, eventually we're gonna need to look at how does it impact a workload? Cause it absolutely, like you just said, impacts a workload. But I think I've been really, really fortunate in working and first, and we've never forced a faculty to do it. We wouldn't do that. We, but our faculty are motivated. They want to do it. They really do care about student success and our students are loving it. Yeah, I could see if, if students are going to faculty saying we really like this. Uh, Colleges have great faculty, and I could see them raising mm -hmm. to the occasion to to have another choice. Um, here, here's a question for you. Uh, that's kind of a fun question for me. I, I'm going to throw it, put put you on the spot though. Um, if you had any extra budget money today, how would you spend it? 
out of all the things that's going on in your campus right now, here's some bucks. What would you use it for? I would use it to take our, um, our mechatronics building that I just told you about across the street and make that world-class. Um, and, and I, I think that's now I should preface this with, I, I have not asked my president how he would spend that money. So, so this is my this view is only. Your, this is your call. <laughs> This is just me. Um, So I will let me put that out there. Um, But I think one of the things that if anything frustrates me about about working in a rural community college, it's we're just over a mountain range from Portland. And so if you go into the Portland area, you can see their mechatronic centers and their CTE buildings and I mean, millions and millions of dollars in there and our jaws just drop and simulated hospitals and, and these things that are just so amazing. And, and I ask, how do you pay for this? And they're like, oh, our Perkins budget. And I'm like, okay, well, our Perkins budget last year was $40,000. It bought one machine. Um, and so I think uh, if I could wave a magic wand and, and make something happen, it would be to make a world-class center right here so that our rural students have the same opportunities as our students in our big city areas. I mean, they just, they deserve that. Very nice. Well, here's, here's my last question. Um, what do you think the community college of the future will look like in 10 years or, or even five years? Did you save the hardest one for last or what? <laughs> well, get out the crystal ball because I think everybody's going to want to hear what you have to say. <laughs> um, well, so first of all, I think that that community colleges are going to become more and more responsive to industry. And we're seeing more manufacturing. We're seeing more industry come back to the U.S. and come back to our rural areas. So I think we have to be responsive to industry and we have to we have to produce graduates that industry wants to hire. And so I think in some ways, industry will dictate what we look like in five to 10 years. Um, I do hope from a systemic perspective that community colleges become better at lobbying and better. You see universities have really strong lobbying bodies and you see the Department of Ed and K-12 have really strong. I think community colleges need to do that. It's only been in the last two presidents that a president has said the word community college and that was pretty novel. Um, So I think we are becoming more mainstream, but I expect us to be an answer going forward. And I think that that's really important. The one thing I hope we don't lose, um, and maybe this comes from being a social worker and, and that kind of thing, I hope we don't lose the general ed component of what we do. People talk about students needing soft skills or employability skills and those kinds of things. And sometimes people don't realize that is general education. People learn to critically think, they learn to perform in teams, they learn to do that in gen ed where we wrestle with those tough, hard questions or those questions without answers. And so I hope that the community college of the future preserves that um, because it, that's what produces well-rounded critical thinkers and oh my gracious, does the world need more of that? I agree, I was putting together a criminal justice degree and I remember talking to the police chief here in Billings actually, and, you know, I'm thinking of all those technical skills. Well, the technical skills. And he said, Dave, I need somebody who can talk to people, who can write things. In other words, he wants the professional skills. They can teach the other. That, that makes a police officer employable for him. Uh, yes. That really, that, that changed my whole philosophy of, of uh, gen ed classes sometimes. Because, you know, uh, when I first started out as teaching, I zeroed in on, on the skills that I was 
that was in my program that I thought was so important. And then students would come in and say, oh, you know, this gen ed class, and they, and they seem to separate them. They, did, they seem to talk about them like, that's just something I have to get through. The important thing is getting through the program. And then at the end of the program, they realize those, those as you call them, soft skills or professional skills actually makes them employable. Yes. I, in all my leadership positions that I've held, I've never quit teaching. Um, I, I still teach a course and here and there, and I, I teach my favorite course to teach right now is on ethics. And we wrestle with all of those things in the news and wrestle with how to critically think about them and ethics. You don't think, oh, we, we should put an ethics course in criminal justice, or we should put an ethics course in welding or manufacturing, but we absolutely should. When you think about where do we wrestle with these problems and, and how do we learn to critically think and how do we practice critical thinking that that's in gen ed and as the further we got away from gen ed, the more people industry started saying we need employability skills we need employability skills we've well, got to put that gen ed back in and and as we do that we see more of that, so I hope that the community college of the future doesn't doesn't lose that. Um, I, I just love. Um, you know what the. The Dalai Lama said, "The what the world needs now is more critical thinkers," and oh, that's just never been more true. <laughs> uh, well, Teresa, thanks so much for being a guest on the show. I really enjoyed our conversation. I had so much fun. Thank you for having me. It was a blast. Well, that ends today's show. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks for listening to today's episode and make sure to visit our website at academicdean.com for additional information. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.